For those of you that have been with us over the course of the summer, we spent our summer in the book of Judges um, in one little corner of the Old Testament, and we've been talking about this one thing week in and week out, that the greatness of God's grace is seen in the depth to which it reaches. And if you've been here this summer, you can attest those depths have been pretty deep indeed on some days. Well, we're, uh, we're still talking about Judges today. This is going to be the last sermon in the series, but we're actually going to not be in the book of Judges. We're going to be looking instead in the book of Hebrews and talking about a New Testament reflection on the book of Judges. Um, we'll be looking in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, that's on page 1007 of your pew Bibles, if you're using one of those. Before we read, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we come again to you in many different states of mind. Some of us are um, maybe doubting. Some of us are maybe questioning why we're even here this morning. Some of us are maybe skeptical that we can open up this very ancient book and actually find you, the true and living God. But Lord, we know that this is your word to us. You've revealed yourself to us in the pages of Scripture. So we pray right now that you'd be merciful to us, that you would meet us even as we come before you and read of you in the pages of of this book, open it up to us. Open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read together again. We're in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to skip a few verses here and there, but we're beginning in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because he saw, they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. Down chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As I said, all summer we've been looking at the fact that God's grace is seen in the depths to which it reaches. And today, at the very end of the series, we're going to see that the greatness of God's grace is also seen in the heights to which it lifts us, both in the depths and in the heights. And we're going to look at two things this morning. We're going to look at the surprising end of our story, and we're going to look at the common thread of our story. Okay, so first, the surprising end of our story. If you've been listening all summer, if you've been reading the book of Judges, your first thought is likely going to be, did the writer of Hebrews re- actually read the book of Judges? Right? Because right here in the middle of our story of all these people who by faith followed God, we get the names, verse 32, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, these guys that have shown up over the course of the summer. Let me just recap some of the highlights of, these, uh, of their fine careers. Gideon, the angel finds him hiding in a wine press, threshing grain, tells him to come and lead God's army, and he repeatedly is hesitant. He doesn't believe. He's asking God to continually show him another sign. He's afraid to follow God. Uh, Barak, he was also in need of God's assurance that he was with him. Uh, And because he demanded that uh, Deborah go with him into battle, he was denied the glory that he would have received from leading God's army. Samson, frittering away his whole life in this endless pursuit of his own pleasures that ultimately leads to his own death. He's more successful in delivering Israel and the enemies that he kills as he dies than he ever was while he was alive. And there's Jephthah, son of a prostitute. He's a mercenary. He's power hungry. He makes this rash vow to God at the end of his daughter's life. All these people 
If you've been listening this summer, if you've read the book of Judges, then you know the last thing you think of when you read those stories is that they would ever be commended for anything. I remember in seminary, on a class on Old Testament history and theology, I read the book of Judges and was really struck by them. Then I took another class on the book of Hebrews, and I thought, has he read Judges? Like, does he know these stories? Um, Because here they are in the midst of stories of God's faithfulness. And the point with all this is that God takes even these failing men and he makes them a part of his story, of the story that he is telling. And it's amazing as we read this that their failings and even their sin and their weaknesses are not the end of the story. That God's doing something in them. It's not their failures that speak loudest. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, we had to memorize quotes from Shakespeare. Maybe this is going to sound familiar to you. Remember Julius Caesar? Mark Antony gets up at Julius Caesar's funeral and he says, Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. And what's Mark Antony saying? It's the bad things that we do that live after us. The good stuff just dies in the dust. But what's the writer of Hebrews saying? Exactly the opposite. He says, for these men, it's good brought about by God's grace that is what survives. And it's the evil that falls to the ground. He's telling us that for the Christian, it's not the dark parts of our lives that have the final word, but rather it's the life of Jesus in us who has the final word in our lives. writer of Hebrews is saying, of course they were fallen. Of course they were a mess. Of course they led their people often even into destruction. Of course they made mistakes. What's the final verdict? God looks at them and he says, they are mine. They are a part of my story. And my story is more powerful even than their failure and their sin. Let me ask you a question. How is your story, for me, how is my story, how are our stories, how are they going to end? How's your story going to end? Now some of us are maybe right at what we assume is the beginning of our stories. Uh, For some of us, maybe we're starting at William and Mary, we're freshmen, we're underclassmen, things are just getting rolling for us. Um, Maybe you are just beginning your career or a new job. Maybe you're just beginning a family and you're out to change the world. You're going to finally make it. You're going to do it better. You're going to do it better than your parents. You're going to do it better than whoever you're holding up is your standard of comparison whatever your picture of success is. But let me ask you this. What is at the heart of your story? What's at the heart of the thing that you are pursuing? What is your life going to be for? Not what are you going to do, but what is your life going to be for? The writer of Hebrews tells us that if our lives are going to have any lasting value at all, any lasting meaning, any eternalness to it, that it's only going to happen if it's rooted in a story that's bigger than our own, in this larger story that God's telling. Now, some of us might be closer to the end of our stories. Maybe you're looking back and you're thinking, I've done pretty well for myself. You know, you've raised your children. uh, You've done well in your career. You've made a name for yourself in whatever little corner of the world was your own. Uh, But maybe some days you look back over it and it just doesn't quite feel like enough. And that might well be because it's not. 
because your story is too small. See, unless, again, our stories are caught up in this bigger story that God is telling us, then your story is only going to leave you at the end of the day hollow and wanting more. And if that's where you are, hear what this passage says. The common denominator of all the people in this passage is that they knew God, that their story was woven into the story of Jesus. And if yours isn't, then keep listening, because it can be. Or maybe you're near the end of your story, and looking back, all you really see is the failure and the mess that you've made of it. I've heard some of your stories. I know some of you feel that way. Let the lives of the people in the book of Judges then offer you hope. May this passage offer us hope that the brokenness and the failure you look back on in your life don't have to be the final word. Okay, the, um, we talked about the surprising end of our story. We're going to look at the second half of this, the common thread of our story. And the common thread that runs through all the stories in chapter 11 is the story of faith. That's the word that keeps coming up again and again, by faith, by faith, by faith. Um, we're going to talk about four things under the common th- thread of our story. Now, I tried to frame this as a two-point sermon, but really, I was trying to hide five points, so here's where the rest of them come out. Um, okay, four things about faith, the common thread of our story. We're going to talk about the definition of faith. We're going to talk about the necessity of faith, the exercise of faith, and the object of faith. Okay? The definition of faith, Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Look back at those. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old receive their commendation. Assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. You maybe have heard plenty of definitions of faith. This is in one way the closest the Bible comes to actually trying to define what exactly faith is. Let me just offer you a thought. A faith is a determined response of your soul, of all of you, to trust God and his promises. Okay? A determined choice to trust God and his promises. And the thing is, all our relationships work this way. You have to exercise faith in every relationship you have in your life. Okay, let's say it's with your spouse. Your spouse might have spent many years doing kind things for you, showing things, doing things for you that show love to you. But at the end of the day, you still have to take it on faith that your spouse really loves you. They could have been banking on you. One day this person's going to make a million dollars. And then one day he's going to die. And I'm going to be able to enjoy the fruits of his labor for the rest of my own life, right? Your spouse could be thinking that. Now, I hope she's not or I hope he's not. But how would you know? You have to grasp every relationship you have in faith. You have to trust Now, that faith may well be founded on good reasons. You know your spouse. But at the end of the day, you have to trust. And it's the same in our relationship with God. He's he's shown us Jesus. He's given us His Word. He has acted in our lives. He's shown us again and again in His goodness. But it still takes faith to trust that He's really for us, that He's really good. Every relationship takes that. Every relationship we actually interpret what someone is doing towards us. Let me give you another thought on faith. Uh, This is reaching fairly far back for me to my freshman year in college in my intro psych class. Reach back with me. Um, Object permanence. You guys remember this? When a child is very small, first year of life, they can't remember you. 
Okay, so every time you say goodnight to your baby and they wake up in the morning, it's like a whole new existence for them. Who is this person? Maybe they'll feed me, right? They don't remember you. That's why peekaboo works with a little kid. Because when you hold the blanket up in front of their face, you disappear from the universe. And when you pull the blanket down, you reappear. What a great trick is that? They don't, they don't understand when they're not looking at something that it still exists. And faith, another way of looking at it, is spiritual object permanence. That you're able to hold on to the fact that the God who's been good to you in the past, even if you don't see him in the moment, is the God who is still there, even when you can't see him. He's the God who still holds you in his hands. Her daughter Caroline's about a little over two years old now, and I remember this transition for her of gaining object permanence. One way we saw it is all kids cry out in the middle of the night. And anybody, don't want to shatter your dreams of being a mother or father, anyone who feeds that baby is going to be their favorite person in the world, right? You come feed my, my son Henry in the middle of the night, he'll love you like you're his mother. Elizabeth will tell you that. But here's the thing. Somewhere along the way with Caroline, she didn't just cry out in the middle of the night. She started crying out for mommy and daddy. Because when we turned the lights out at night, she remembered that we were still there. She was gaining object permanence. Faith is crying out to the God that we know is still there. Now, that's a little bit on the definition of faith. Hebrews 11.6, if you look down, tells us about the necessity of faith. It says a couple basic things. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Of course. I mean, how else could it be? If relating to God, if God is a person... And for us to relate to God as a person, of course, that we have to believe that he exists. He's not simply some sort of impersonal force out there, but he's actually someone that we can have a relationship with. You have to believe someone's capable of that to even approach them in faith. It says that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, what's this business about rewards? If you lose your dog, you put a sign out in the neighborhood... $100 reward, and your neighbor finds your dog and comes, brings him to you, what do they want? They want, I want, they want the $100, right? The reward. What is the reward for the person who lost the dog for you? It's your dog. You've got your dog back. When the writer of Hebrews says, you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him, the reward that he's speaking about is the presence of God himself. The reward is the thing that we are seeking all along. We have to trust that God, when we approach him, really is going to give us what we're so desperately asking him for, which is himself. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that it is. Going back to Caroline crying out in the middle of the night. What happens when she's crying out for mommy and daddy, and we come to her in the middle of the night? She stops crying because she has a reward. She has the thing she's been crying out for. Now, necessity of faith. Look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 12. We're going to talk about the exercise of faith. We've got this image of being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, these are not spectators watching you, cheering you on. Okay, what is the writer of Hebrews doing? He's just brought to mind this long line of faith. And what he says is that they are all witnesses. They are people who are pointing to, not us, 
but pointing to the faithfulness of God, that we would be encouraged and reminded that the God who was faithful to them is a God who's faithful to us as well. Now, have you, ever know, have you known people like this? Have you known people where you were just in their presence and you were reminded of the reality and the goodness of God, just watching their lives up front? There was a guy back in North Carolina where my wife and I used to live, was a regional director with, um, with Young Life, ministry to high school students. And I, I probably got to have a significant conversation with him about two or three times. But I remember those because I walked away thinking, this is someone who knows Jesus. And I somehow know Jesus better after spending time with him. That's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. All these witnesses pointing to the faithfulness of Jesus, pointing us back to the faithfulness of Jesus. Now, the second thing about the exercise of faith, it says that we are to uh, lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. The image here is of a Greek athlete in, the, in competition stripping off his clothes so that he will be unencumbered. So there'll be nothing to hinder him. He takes off this heavy robe that he would have been wearing that would tie up his feet when he's running. He casts it off so that he can run with freedom. My uh, brother-in-law is a triathlete, and he's told me before that races can be lost in the transition. When you get out of the swim and you're getting ready for the bike, when you jump off the bike and get ready to run, you're changing your shoes, you're changing your equipment. Races are lost there when people are too slow, when they're too encumbered. The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't let anything encumber you in the race that you're in. So let me ask you this. What is, what's slowing you down in the race of faith? What is slowing you down in following Jesus? Is it your pride? Is it your money? Is it your retirement fund, your desire to be comfortable, your perfect plan for your life, your perfect plan for your major? Maybe for some of us, it's your doubts and your insecurities, which are really just another form of narcissism tying us up to, things that hamper us. What's clinging to you? Uh, I'll tell you a story about myself. I, I tend to be, I like to consider myself a fairly generous person. When it comes to time and effort. But when it comes to money, I'm incredibly stingy. Uh, Elizabeth and I dated for about four years, and she remembers fondly both times I took her out to dinner. <laughs> this, past, um, this past week, we were talking about a friend of ours. It's her birthday this week. So I'm thinking about a birthday present for our friend, and Elizabeth says, you know, she's, she's had a hard week. I think that we should give her a gift certificate for a pedicure. And I was thinking balloons, you know. <laughs> Tell you another example. There was, somebody's getting a pedicure this week. Uh, I'll give you another example. There's, uh, Elizabeth and I were visiting a church where a, friend, a good friend of ours is the pastor. And it's a church plan, and we've helped support that in the past. And so we're sitting in the, in the aisle, and offering time comes. I'm telling you the story after the offering. This is not a pitch for you to put more money in the plate. But so the, the offering plate's coming around, and we're trying to decide how much we're going to give. And so in my mind, I come up with a number. But I know that I'm sitting next to Elizabeth, so I double it. Now, Elizabeth is coming up with a number, but she knows she's sitting next to me, so she cuts it in half. And then we talk about it, and her number was still four times higher than mine. 
let me ask you this. Maybe you're not stingy like I am. What is it? What are the things that just grab a hold of our hearts, that grab a hold of your heart, and keep you from following Jesus? The things that encumber you, the things that trip you up. And what's it going to look like for you to cast those aside? Well, for me, in that moment, it meant, okay, four times what I expected. Okay, a pedicure. What's it going to look like for you to cast aside the things that are tripping you up from following Jesus? We were made to run. And the encouragement of our text is that we turn away from everything that's tripping us up. To earn God's favor? Of course not. But that we might respond to his grace at work in our life. Then the last thing in our text, the object of our faith. Chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Faith for a Christian is faith in a person. It's not faith in faith. It's not faith in some abstract cosmic principle. It's not a blind leap in the dark. It is faith in Jesus Christ, crucified for us, raised from the dead by the power of his Father for us. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in a person. And this picture of faith in chapter, in chapter 12, verse 2, shows us running this race with our eyes riveted on Jesus, looking to him. I'll give you an example. When I was in college, some friends and I used to go rappelling. And when you're rappelling, when you're climbing off a mountain and you're holding onto this rope and that's all that's holding you up, you know, what does your life depend on? No, the answer is not the rope. Not in this illustration. The first thing you do when you go rappelling at the top of the mountain is you find something secure to tie your rope onto. If you tie it onto a little sapling, you're going to be in trouble in the middle of rappel. What do you do? You find a big rock, the biggest tree that you can find, and you tie your rope to that. And as you're coming down the mountain, you can rest because your life is anchored into something that can bear your weight. And Scripture tells us that if your rope is attached to anything but Jesus, it can't bear your weight. It can't hold you up. Looking to Jesus, our eyes riveted on Him. When you're running, when you're walking, when you're driving, you ever notice that something catches your your eye off to the side of the road, and if you look at it too long, you're going to find that you're you're drifting towards it, right? That's when you hit the edge of the road and you kind of yank it back into the middle we tend to drift in the direction of the thing that we are gazing at. The writer of Hebrews tells us, fix your eyes on Jesus. Ran track in high school. One of the cardinal rules in track is never look to the side because races are lost that way too. Keep your eye fixed on the finish line. And then it calls Jesus, these two words, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Another way of saying that would be the initiator and the completer of our faith. The one who goes before us in faith. The one who makes our faith complete. The one who won for us salvation. Now this is the answer to how the judges that we've talked about all summer can be included in this list of faith. 
why we can as well. Because the truth is, our story about following Jesus really is about actions. And it really is about effort, and it really is about achievement. But the thing is, it's not about our effort. It's not about our striving. It's not about our achievement. It's about the work of Jesus for us. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the initiator and completer of our faith. So let's go back to this earlier question. How is your story going to end up? The book of Judges, the book of Hebrews, the whole Bible tells us that the only way our story is going to make sense in the end, the only way it's going to flourish, the only way it's going to result in life for us is that if it's rooted by faith in the story of Jesus, the story of the one who died that we might live and who's even now, in the words of verse 2, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is where our study of Judges all summer long has been pointing us. Not only that the greatness of God's grace is seen in the depths to which it reaches, but the greatness of God's grace is seen in the heights to which it reaches, the heights to which it raises us, that it takes people like Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, Samson, me, you. And it reaches down into the depths, the mess of our lives, and it raises us up to be a part of the story that God is telling in our world. To have a place in the story of God putting the whole universe back to rights of bringing wholeness and salvation through the person of Jesus. And that's where the perspective of the writer of Judges and the perspective of the writer of Hebrews come together. The writer of Judges tells us the story about the Judges. And the point is always, this doesn't take us far enough. Where is our rescue going to come from? Our judges can't save us. We can't save ourselves. We need a king who's going to come and rescue us. He's looking ahead. And the writer of Hebrews, looking back and saying, that king, that rescuer, that better judge, is found in the person of Jesus. And because of Jesus coming and stepping into that for us, all our stories now can be brought into the story of redemption, the story of God bringing this world back to rights, the story of the world being redeemed. The grace of God reaches into the depths that we too might live on the heights. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You take broken, wrecked things and make them whole. Pray, Father, that would be very real to us. That if that's the way we look at our lives, if that's the reality of our lives, that we would see that healing and wholeness only come from you. Lord, we thank you that in Jesus we have the privilege of being a part of the story that you are telling in this world. A story that gives glory to you. A story in which we can really find life. Pray, Father, for any of us who don't know you that you draw us into that. And I pray for all of us that you'd soften our hearts and turn us from the things that trip us up, the, the sin that clings so closely. May we, by your grace, cast it aside that we may follow you with our whole hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
If you look in your bulletin, you'll see our responsive reading as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper. This comes from the book of Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise for the Lamb at the center of the throne. One of the places in the New Testament that we read about what we're about to do right now, partaking of the Lord's Supper, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. Listen now to what Paul tells us about this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, He took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself." There's both great promise and also real warning in this passage. Paul tells us, as he quotes the words of Jesus at the Last Supper, that this meal is for God's people. And it's not just a remembrance of what Jesus did for us, though it's certainly that. In this meal, those of us know Jesus, partake of it in faith, looking to Jesus. We actually experience the grace of Jesus for us even right now. God actually feeds us by faith, through this meal. Now, this is not the table of the PCA. It's not Grace Covenant's table. This is the Lord's table. And He invites anyone who has put their trust in Him and come into a local body of a church that worships Him to come and take part of this meal. And that does mean that if that is not true of you, if you're someone who's not a Christian, if you're somebody who has not made that profession of faith, let me just say that we are glad that you're here with us. We would be sad if you weren't. But let me just say that this meal is not for you right now. Let me encourage you to think about Jesus who offers himself for us, which is what this meal points to. This is for those who have put their stake in Jesus. Partake of this meal together. It's also, if you are someone who claims the name of Jesus, but you just know that you're running from him and you're unwilling to turn around, then I encourage you not to take this meal right now either. Instead, repent. Turn around. This meal is not going to do you any good because it gives us Jesus. And if that's what you're running from, turn around. But all that said, this is for broken, needy people desperately in need of Jesus. It's not for people who have it all together. There's none of those in this room. It is for people who are resting in Jesus. So I invite you just as the Father invites you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation that you've given us through the actual body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so right now we set aside these elements to celebrate this sacrament. We pray that you would meet with us by your grace as we feed on you in faith. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
Can I ask the officers that are helping serve come forward, please?